Good morning. My name is Karl Möller, and I'm a part of this 11 o'clock uh, congregation here at St. Tees. It's great to be with you this morning. And of course, it's that time of year again, Advent, the lead up to Christmas, when the days have grown short, the country is covered in snow, and our houses are filled with a sweet sense of freshly baked treats, or maybe not. But Advent, it certainly is. And what we do have is an Advent wreath, and of course, one of those typical Advent texts. Isaiah 9, with its well-known language and images. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Well-known, comforting, feel-good images. As I said, it's that time of year again. But how do these images actually sit with you this year? We're living in increasingly difficult and uncertain times. And as always, when we lift our eyes and look beyond our borders, we find that many others are having, are having an even harder time. But it also feels, to me at least, as though the uncertainties, the difficulties, the hardships have been creeping closer and closer. So what do you make of Isaiah's images? Do they still affect you? Do they still instill a sense of hope, of comfort, of trust that God will have our back? Or have they turned into some dim, empty, irrelevant folklore? Deep down, do you even resent having to listen to what may feel like the same old religious propaganda year on year on year? A great light, joy, rejoicing, rejoicing, and some more rejoicing. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, no end to the greatness of his government and peace, justice and righteousness forever. How does all this sound two and a half thousand years after these words were first written? Maybe the way to go then is to spiritualize them, to separate them neatly and firmly from our daily lives, from the news and from the state that our world is in, and just hope for some compensation in the world which is to come. Maybe we should just give up on this world and put all our hope in the next. No, of course not. I don't know what your thoughts about life after death are, but we are right to and we must invest in this life. As Christians, we believe in a God who created this, our world. We believe in a God who created you and me as people with bodies, minds, and souls. 
who created our five senses that allow us to encounter this world and each other, able to see, to hear, smell, taste, and touch, and so enjoy God's creation, who created our intelligence that enables us to reflect on what's happening in our world in deep, profound, and sometimes sophisticated ways, who created us with spiritual antennae that empower and drive us to connect with this world, with other people, with ourselves, and with the numinous, the divine, in healing and life-giving ways. How we connect with and invest in this life that we've been given inevitably takes different forms for each one of us. But I hope that we all get to taste and see the beauty of life on this earth, even amidst all the hardships that we may encounter. Isaiah's images are not about an alternative reality. They're not an escapist spiritual or heavenly fantasy. They are, in the truest sense of the word, very grounded and focused on life in God's creation. Isaiah's vision is about light, joy, peace, justice, and righteousness here on earth. And indeed, so was Jesus' vision, whose advent, whose arrival, we are remembering throughout the time of Advent. So let's take a closer look now at Isaiah's vision. If you followed our reading carefully, you've noticed that alongside all those sweet images, there's a disturbingly dark, violent reality that Isaiah addresses when he speaks of a land of deep darkness, warriors and plunder, a day of defeat, a burdening yoke, a bar across people's shoulders, and the rod of an oppressor. And if all that may be safely metaphorical, then Isaiah goes on to talk about garments rolled in blood. And he talks about boots stomping into battle, as one commentator translates one of the phrases of our text. Isaiah is referring to a reality that's marked by cruelty, oppression, war, and massive suffering, the kind that words cannot express. A horrific reality that all too many people across our world still navigate as we sit here and think about Isaiah's text. When I read this earlier this week, I did wonder what a preacher in Ukraine or any other war-torn country might make of our passage. So what exactly is Isaiah saying? We're so used to applying his vision to the coming of Jesus that we forget that Isaiah's words were said and of course made sense several hundred years before Luke told his story of a bunch of shepherds being led to a Bethlehemite manger. Several hundred years before, Matthew talked about some well-traveled wise men 
arriving in that, small, in that same small town, guided by a star and Jerusalem, Jerusalem's best-informed clergy and religious studies experts. What would that great light that Isaiah talks about, that child that was to end up in government, guaranteeing lasting peace, the guy with that amazing CV, I mean, who can claim to be known as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace? What would all that have meant to Isaiah's audience hundreds of years or before Jesus' birth. Now let me begin with a comment about the language of our text, because the phrase mighty God can also be translated mighty warrior. Isaiah is talking about God intervening in the people's life, their dark everyday reality, to rescue or save them like God had done time and time again in the period that we know as the period of the judges. When God appointed mighty judges, rulers that would rescue the Israelites from their enemies, from all the hardships of war that they had suffered again and again. Isaiah somewhat similarly tells the people that God has made preparations for a new powerful king to appear on the scene. One who would end the darkness of war a wise ruler who would look after his people like a concerned father, guaranteeing peace and thus a much better life. Commentators familiar with the conventions of ancient Near Eastern language and imagery will tell you that Isaiah's words match the language used to describe wise, powerful kings. Isaiah therefore talks about his time, his reality, and that of his audience, of course. A dark time, a time of massive suffering, a time of despair and hopelessness. But, he says, God is going to put an end to all that. God is going to send a wise and powerful king who is going to get the, na the nation out of all this misery. The people of Israel, those who've lived in a land of deep darkness, will step out into the light at last. And with that, we fast forward to Jesus, because Isaiah's vision is one of those texts that has proved to be of significance well beyond his time, well beyond what Isaiah might have imagined. It's Jesus, the New Testament writers tell us, who more than any other person in Israel's history is the guy with that amazing CV. It's Jesus who is and brings that, magnific that magnificent light to those living in deep darkness. And that's not limited to spiritual darkness because Jesus was concerned about and healed those with, with physical illnesses. Jesus was concerned about and sought out the company of those shunned by respectable society, prostitutes and tax collectors. It's Jesus 
who's come to remove the yokes of people's burdens, the bars across their shoulders that keep them down, the rods of people's oppressors. Jesus is that child that's been given to us. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And that the peace that Isaiah is envisaging once again is not just a spiritual concept is clear when he talks about every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood being destined for burning and as fuel for the fire. Snow or no snow, this is a great time of year because we remember the advent of the Prince of Peace, who in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount would go on to teach his followers not to judge others because of the log in their own eyes, the log in our eyes which prevents us from seeing clearly. The Prince of Peace who would teach us not to retaliate evil with violence, who would teach us to love our enemies, apparently without any exception, just as the demand that we don't judge others is not qualified in any way. The Prince of Peace who would not command God's heavenly army to prevent his own torturous death on a Roman cross, but would actually pray for forgiveness for those who were instrumental in that cruel act. When we are remembering the advent of the true light of the world, whose own vision for our world is encapsulated in his teaching of the kingdom of God, which actually isn't an escapist, spiritual, or heavenly concept either, but an alternative reality here on earth. A reality that began to take shape during Jesus' own lifetime, as his teaching makes clear. An, alternate, an alternative to all the violent, oppressive governments. An alternative to all the unjust, unequal economic realities. An alternative to all the vicious, dehumanizing defamation of outsiders everywhere. An alternative to all those yokes, all those bars on people's shoulders. An alternative to all those oppressive rods that still to this day keep people down and destroy so many lives. But how is all of that going to become a reality? Is this not, as I asked earlier, little more than some empty, irrelevant folklore? Is this not the same old religious propaganda? Am I not guilty of peddling some outdated visions first dreamt up some two and a half thousand years ago in a country under powerful foreign rule and then renewed in first century Palestine 
when that same country was still ruled by a mighty foreign army. How are Isaiah and Jesus' alternative visions ever to become a reality? How can that light shine in our time? Well, what did Jesus say? He is the light of the world. Yes, absolutely. But that is not what Matthew tells us, or that is not all that Matthew tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. That is what Jesus says. You are the light of the world, so let your light shine. Let your light shine by not judging others. Let your light shine by not retaliating evil with violence. Let your light shine by loving your enemies. Now that's clearly only a small selection of Jesus' teaching. But if Jesus' followers everywhere were to take this seriously, if they entered through that narrow gate that Jesus talks about and walked on that hard road that is the road of the kingdom of heaven, then that kingdom would grow bit by bit and little by little. As Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, he's looking for disciples who don't just get baptized in his name, but who actually practice what he has taught them. But how is that possible? Allow me to finish with a couple of observations. The first is that I deliberately talked about God having given us intelligence and spiritual antennae, which allow us to approach this, our life, in ways that can make a real difference to ourselves and to the people around us can make a real difference to this world. Our, theo our theology can sometimes be rather one-sided when we focus on um, our fallenness and uselessness. The other side of the coin is the insight of the writer of Psalm 8, who talks about God having created us just a little lower than the heavenly beings. God has created us a little lower than the heavenly beings. Secondly, of course, when Jesus expects us to be the light of the world and put into practice his teaching, he adds, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is, as usual, no snow, but it is Advent. And so, called to be the light of the world, we remember the Advent of that magnificent light that's come to put an end to the, to the world's deep darkness. The Advent of our wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.